the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine and um, we are going to be resuming our look at unlikely military victories. So this week I've got four more battles to present to you that uh, involve people or involve armies or nations winning battles against the odds. Now, our first visit back in history takes us to the year 1014 and the island of Ireland and the location is Clontarf. Now, the island of Ireland had been settled by North Norse Vikings, I beg your pardon, who established colonies at several key ports on the island. So, therefore, the Vikings had established a political dominance in Ireland. They were calling the shots at the time. The High King of Ireland was a man called Brian Boru, and he had battled his way to a position of power throughout his adult life and had become a very important part of Irish politics. Despite being the High King of Ireland, Brian Boru did not rule over all of the kingdoms of Ireland directly. Instead, the various kings recognised Brian as their overlord and acted as tributary kings. Brian would find himself required to deal with various rebellions, but essentially he maintained good order until a more serious rebellion took place in 1013 involving Leinster and Dublin who had never been wholly comfortable bowing down to anyone. The King of Leinster was Moil Murda Mac Murda, who was the same king who was also the King of Leinster when they rebelled in 999, leading to the Battle of Glenmama. The Norse Gael King of Dublin was a man called Sigtrick Silkbeard, who was also the King of Dublin during the very same rebellion. Sigtrick and Brian had married into each other's family since the Battle of Glenmama, with Brian being married to Sigtrick's mother, Gormfla. When Brian divorced Gormfla, this soured the relationship between Munster and Dublin. As a result, Sigtrick was keen to join the Leinster Rebellion against Brian Baru, and he would contact some supportive allies to assist him. One of whom was a man called Sigurd the Stout, who was the Norse Gael Earl of Orkney. Another was a man called Brother, who may have been a military leader based in the Isle of Man, likely of Danish origin. Both 
Sigurd the Stout and Brother of Man pledged their allegiance to Sigtrick's Siltbeard in Dublin. Brother's brother, Uspak, felt that it was a bad idea to support the Irish rebellion and defected to Brian Baru's side when he learned that Brother planned to slay Uspak's men for not pledging their own allegiance. Brian was actually quite elderly by this time and so he relied on his own son, Murhad MacBrian, to actively lead his army. So the two opposing forces would meet at Clontarf, north of Dublin, on Good Friday in the year 1014. The Battle of Clontarf We have to read between the lines a little with the sources available to us regarding the Battle of Clontarf, but we can make a number of suppositions and suggestions based on what we do have. Considerable embellishment of the story is not out of the question, particularly as we have to refer to Norse sagas for information too. With Brian's aim to actively suppress the rebellion, his son Murhad would advance on the enemy with his men bravely and would engage the men led by the Earl of Orkney Sigurd the Stout. Murhad fought bravely with accounts of him slaying a hundred men with one of them actually being Sigurd the Stout himself. However, Murhad found himself unable to escape the battlefield and he was slain himself. So the Earl of Orkney and Brian Baru's son perished in the battle during the early exchanges. As the fighting continued throughout the day, the forces of Brian Baru maintained the upper hand. The Dublin Vikings were being eliminated in numbers, and it is suggested that only a small number of them survived until the later part of the day. We know that Brian Baru's son was lost in the battle, but it also appears that Murhat's teenage son was in the battle too that day. Tarlach, Brian Baru's grandson, also died on the battlefield. We know that a nephew of Brian Baru was also on the battlefield and his name was Conan MacDonquan, King of Desmond. It is told that Conan actually killed the King of Leinster, Moil Morha Mac Murha, on the battlefield before being slain himself. By all accounts, it seems that this was a bloody and intense battle in which both sides suffered heavy losses. Towards the end of the day, with the King of Leinster now killed and Dublin Vikings becoming low in numbers, the Vikings decided that it was the right time to flee the battlefield and so their only means to escape was back to their longships. However, the tide had risen and many of the ships had prematurely fled the scene, leaving some of the Dublin Vikings to face the consequences of being slain on the battlefield or drowned in the sea. Some of the Viking warriors were still armed and ready to continue when their comrade, Brother of Man, took an opportunity to approach the Munster camp where they would find the tent of Brian Baru. Brian was an elderly man, possibly unable to fight as he would have done as a younger man, and possibly mourning the slaughter of his fine son on the battlefield. 
while Brian was praying in his tent, Brodrath and his Viking contingent attacked Brian and killed him. Brian's bodyguards leapt into action and captured the assailants, putting them all to a grisly death, Brother included. It was too late for Brian, who died at this battle, despite his army being the victors. One account says that Brian was killed by an axe to his head, but that he was able to cut off his attacker's left leg and right foot. Brother is reported to have had his stomach slashed open before he was made to walk around a tree until his insides had fallen out. Despite Brian Baru losing his life at the battle, this did symbolise a threshold from Viking political dominance of Ireland to the weakening of this power and therefore the end of the Viking era. So it is highly significant and iconic to Irish history in general. Our next battle takes us to the year 1176 and to Legnano in northern Italy. And it was in the late 12th century that this area of Italy was a tense patchwork of city-states that didn't always get on well with each other. Until one Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor, attempted to assert his very powerful authority over all of them. Most of the city-states coalesced to form the Lombard League and they were supported by the Pope. Frederick Barbarossa had a force of around 2,000 elite knights in northern Italy. He would send for reinforcements from Germany in the form of heavy cavalry so that he may launch an attack on the town of Alessandria. Alessandria is situated about 50 miles to the southwest of Milan. The Lombard League were aware that Frederick was planning something big and they would not wait around to find out what. Despite the fact that the Lombard League had amassed over 10,000 troops to defend the territories of northern Italy, Frederick had the benefit of having the most elite and highly trained knights, so even though Frederick's troops numbered only around a quarter of the Lombard League's troops, their military expertise more than made up for that deficit. So it was not unreasonable for Frederick to expect to win. To further explain this, it is important to imagine this line-up of heavily armoured cavalry equipped with weapons such as lances. The equipment, armour and battle tactics would have been finely honed through years of expertise, training and experience. The force of such a heavy cavalry charge would have been considerable, even for an army far greater in numbers without the luxury of the armour and weapons of the same quality. The Lombard League's troops would head north to set up a camp within a pass between two rivers that Frederick would have to use in order to continue with his campaign. The Lombard League would pick a strategically advantageous location just north of Legnano, which would hamper the manoeuvrability of the German heavy cavalry, and they would set up a defensive arc of spearmen to prevent the advancing cavalry. The arc would surround a corocho, 
The corocho was quite a common thing for Italian forces during this period. They were four-wheeled wagons bearing the flags and banners of the city that it represented, and in this case it was Milan. Some sources say that the cross of the 11th century Archbishop of Milan, Aribert, was on the corocho, while others state that an image of the 4th century Bishop of Milan, St Ambrose, was also prominently visible. Almost simultaneously, a concession of 300 vanguard cavalry was sent by Frederick to monitor the situation in front of them, while around 700 of the cavalry from the Lombard League rode north to establish Frederick's whereabouts. The two vanguards would find each other. The Battle of Legnano When the 300 German cavalry clashed with the 700 Lombard League reconnaissance cavalry, they would soon come to understand that they were outnumbered. The German vanguard saw fit to retreat back to Frederick's main group and the Lombard League cavalry decided to pursue them. Inevitably, the Lombard League cavalry would stumble across the full German military headed by King Frederick Barbarossa himself. After some form of engagement, the Lombard League cavalry decided that it was their turn to retreat back to their main encampment and Frederick Barbarossa ordered a pursuit. This may have been exactly what the Lombard League were hoping for as they had set themselves up in a position where the German knights would have restricted movement. The Lombard League cavalry actually headed back towards Milan, leaving the bulk of the army at Legnano. Some of the cavalry at Legnano had dismounted to join the ranks of the infantry as they witnessed this incredible sight of 3,000 of Europe's finest knights emerge as Frederick opted to attack the defenders of the Corocho. The Lombard League certainly had knights among its own ranks, but Frederick Barbarossa's knights would have been an intimidating sight for the Lombard League, despite the Lombard League having superior numbers. The goal of Frederick Barbarossa would be to destroy the sacred Milanese Corocho of the Lombard League and destroy the spirit of the Northern Italian City Alliance. The Lombard League would settle into formation in order to defend the Corocho. Their strategy was much like that of a phalanx formation with possibly half a dozen layers of spearmen, the front two rows of which were settled behind shields with their spears protruding from the tightly packed shields and the row right at the front kneeling low so that two rows of spears could emerge at the front of the defence. When Frederick Barbarossa arrived at this defensive formation, he would attempt to be measured in his approach. Initially, it was the morning and Frederick would order attacks on the Lombard League defences. The defences remained unmoved and rigid. So Frederick withdrew and re-strategised in order to make another attack and endeavour to find a weakness in the ranks in order to break through and cause chaos among the otherwise well-organised Lombard League ranks. Frederick would repeat the tactic and be met with stern resistance once again, and would once again have to retreat and regroup. 
Most of the day was spent this way, with the Germans attacking the Italians. The Germans were certainly making some impact on the Italian ranks, but it was not enough to create a breach. The day was becoming old, and the Germans were running out of time. But some reports state that the Germans may have worn down over half of the Lombard League ranks, so things may have become very anxious indeed for the defenders. It was at this point that a pivotal moment occurred. Before the main engagement of the battle took place, some of the knights of the Lombard League staged a reconnaissance but were chased away and they fled in the direction of Milan. It turned out that they were fleeing to Milan with the purpose to notify more troops that the attack on the Carroccio was imminent and so the Lombard League knights returned to the battle scene alongside some cavalry from Brescia and upon their arrival they would attack Frederick Barbarossa's forces from the flank and from the rear. This caused alarm among the tired German knights who were thrown into a state of disorder by this surprise attack. All of the German knights had to engage in battle, including Frederick himself. Many of his elite guards were killed around him, and Frederick's own horse was mortally wounded, which sent Frederick tumbling down. With the German standard bearer already flawed, the German knights could see no sign of the German standard and no sign of their king. This was enough for them to beat a hasty retreat. Some of the German knights were driven in the direction of the river Ticino, where they met with a watery end. So that was the Battle of Legnano, and as with the Battle of Clontarf, uh, Legnano can be referenced for a great sense of national pride, but this time for the nation of Italy. Although tensions between pro-papal and pro-imperial peoples of northern Italy continued long after the battle's conclusion, the Holy Roman Emperor learned an expensive lesson about the resolve of the Italians. Now we go to the year 1340 and to Rio Salado in the Iberian Peninsula. This was in the, the, the thick of the Reconquista and a huge army of Marinids crossed the Strait of Gibraltar from Morocco to the Iberian Peninsula. Their goal was to reclaim lost Muslim lands that had been taken by Christian nations advancing southwards from the north of the peninsula. The kings of Castile and Portugal had no option but to form an alliance to have any chance of resisting. Abu al-Hassan of the Marinids wanted to force the Castilians out of their territories in the south of the peninsula and Yusuf of Granada was right behind him. Abu al-Hassan appeared to have some genuine disdain for the Castilians and declared a jihad, in other words a holy war, against the infidels of Castile. Marinids were already raiding Castilian lands in 1339, the year before the battle. 
Alfonso of Castile was suitably concerned for his possessions and he felt that he would need the support of other nations in order to combat the great Marinid ruler. He was at odds with Afonso of Portugal as described earlier in the episode, but the Marinids were not just a threat to the Castilians, but also would likely become a threat to the Portuguese, especially to their highly valued and sought after lands of the Algarve. So Alfonso and Afonso oversaw the signing of a peace treaty in the city of Seville between the Castilians and the Portuguese. The Pope Benedict XII called for a crusade against the Muslim invaders and this would likely have been when the Marinid naval fleet bested the Castilian galleys in the Strait of Gibraltar which enabled Abu al-Hassan to bring his entire army over the sea with little aggression levelled towards them. Pope Benedict's declaration of a crusade would bring financial donations to Alfonso of Castile, something that he would desperately need in the face of the Marinid invasion. With Algeciras and Gibraltar under Muslim control, the next target was the town of Tarifa. And capturing Tarifa would bring all of the closest coasts of Iberia to Morocco under Muslim control, which would enable ease of supply across the strait. Alfonso of Castile linked up with Afonso of Portugal to assemble their troops and plan to break the siege that Abu al-Hassan had placed on Tarifa. The Christian coalition not only needed to gather as many fighters as possible, but would not be able to waste time stalling an attack due to there being limited supplies. As is often the case with historical battles, we have to take the estimated number of troops with a questioning mind. Some of the numbers put forward in contemporary texts can suggest hundreds of thousands of infantrymen, and we really don't see numbers as high as that too often. A garrison of around a thousand troops were stationed in the besieged Tarifa, and the Castilians may have brought together approximately 20,000 infantry and knights, who may have been supported by around a thousand Portuguese knights. The Granadans may have had several thousand knights themselves, but there is an estimate of 60,000 Marinids. If this is true, then the Marinids had their enemies vastly outnumbered. Alfonso sent a contingent of his troops to support the garrison at Tarifa, while the Muslim coalition withdrew from Tarifa to assume a battle formation. Abu al-Hassan commanded the centre of the Muslim coalition with Yusuf and his Granadans on the right flank of the formation where they would be directly facing the left flank of the Christian coalition which contained Afonso and his Portuguese troops, the infantry armed with crossbow and lances. Interestingly, there is evidence of some minor number of Christians fighting on the Muslim side and vice versa. The Battle of Rio Salado It is difficult to know how much in history is written by writers seeking to glorify aspects of a campaign for their own political or ideological means. But we can say that this particular battle is often overlooked in favour of others in terms of its importance in the history of the Iberian Peninsula. Just how much religion was a primary factor in this battle 
is highly debatable. Certainly, the Christian kingdoms of Castile and Portugal had struggled to see eye to eye with each other in the years leading up to the battle. Also, the Emirate of Granada were not fussy in those years about who they reached out to for support, whether it be the Muslim Marinids or the Christian Castilians, just so long as they were supported. Certainly, religion was used by leaders of their respective nations as a rallying call and a motivator. A relic of the true cross, a fragment of the cross used for Jesus Christ's crucifixion, was reportedly held aloft by a priest dressed in white robes riding a white mule, while a fragment of the Prophet Muhammad's clothing was reportedly worn in a necklace around the neck of Abu al-Hassan. It is likely that had the religious identities of all involved not been accentuated in the build-up, the force that binded the different factions on either side of the battlefield would not have existed, so it may have been a necessary requirement. Not a huge amount is known about the actual battle itself, and this could be a reason why it is not talked about a whole lot more. It is possible that the decision of Alfonso XI of Castile to send a large number of troops to bolster the garrison at Tarifa was highly inspired. With the Christian coalition possibly outnumbered by three troops to one, Alfonso was under pressure to make something happen. So on the morning of the 30th of October 1340, he sent his right-hand flank over the river Salado to push the Marinid left flank. Alfonso himself was involved in the push, which had ambitions of reaching and attacking the Marinid encampment. But when Alfonso reached the camp, he found that he was left wanting for numbers due to the greatness of the Marinid army. This is where Alfonso's decision to add to the numbers of the garrison at Tarifa paid dividends. The garrison was looking to attack the Muslim encampment from the rear, but when they learned of Alfonso's situation in the middle of the battlefield, rather than the Castilians being surrounded, it turned out that the Marinids were surrounded. While this was taking place, more Castilians managed to cross the Salado and turn the tables on the Marinids. When Alfonso and the Portuguese also crossed over, the Granadans fled the battlefield, but they were not the only ones to flee. Many of the Marinid defenders of the encampment had also fled amidst the pressure of defending the camp from all sides. The Christian coalition pursued the fleeing Muslims, which included Abu al-Hassan and Yusuf, who all ended up in the city of Al-Hasiras. They had abandoned the Marinid encampment at Tarifa and left it to its fate, and the Castilians showed no mercy. Many were not spared regardless of gender, age or noble status. Women and children would be slaughtered, and even the Sultan Abu al-Hassan's wife Fatima, the valuable Hafsid princess whose heritage had linked the two nations of North Africa. It was an absolute disaster for the Marinids and the Granadans, and a great victory for the Castilians and the Portuguese. Victory for the outnumbered Christian coalition symbolised an end 
to the Muslim invasions of the Iberian Peninsula. And although there would still be Islamic polities in the south of the peninsula, such as Granada, by the end of the 15th century, they were all gone. Our final dip back into history and a look at uh, unlikely battle victories takes us to the year 1415 and the French uh, village of Agincourt. The English invasion of France under King Henry V had been a disaster and the English had to make a reluctant retreat back to the north coast of France to escape to the safety of England. A numerically superior French army were not willing to allow that to happen. Henry took about 12,000 men across the English Channel. Hundreds of ships transported these men alongside horses and equipment and they landed at the port of Arfleur at the mouth of the Seine River. The port city did not give way to Henry and Henry had to use a significant amount of his resources to force the city to surrender. He certainly had to expend more than he had bargained for. Eventually, the city fell, but there was a cost to his forces. The cost to his forces was high, and it wasn't just the battle for Arfleur or the attritional nature of the siege, but also a wave of disease which accounted for a percentage of his troops. Henry's forces may have been halved, and the siege on Arfleur, although successful, was disastrous in the grand scheme of things. An assault on Paris was now out of the question, and the goal was now to reach the relative safety of the Pale of Calais and get back home. By the time that Arfleur was secured, the French army led by the Constable of France, Charles d'Albray, started tracking the English army. The situation resembled that of Henry's great-grandfather, King Edward III of England, when he was moving across northern France almost 80 years previous. Charles d'Albray would look to avoid direct conflict with the English, believing that it would be more beneficial to pressurise the English journey from afar. If the English army weakened any more, then they would be easy pickings. The goal of the English was to keep marching on. As the English reached the Somme River, the French would attempt to block their crossing. So the English had to venture upriver eastwards as far as Saint-Quentin, where they were able to cross unhindered. The French decided then to head further north to block the route to Calais. Henry received the word from Charles to prepare to be attacked. Henry's choices were to bravely soldier north or to remain still and starve. So he continued onwards tentatively looking for the French army. Henry discovered the French army near the village of Azincourt and knew that a conflict was inevitable. Henry, like his great-grandfather before him, knew that he was outnumbered and knew that he had to be an inspirational leader with a potential solution to this difficult situation. Henry would find a position where his army would be flanked by trees to prevent himself from being outflanked by the larger French army. 
It was now the evening of the 24th of October 1415 and heavy rain fell from the sky, creating a very muddy surrounding. Accounts suggest that the French were celebrating victory on the night before the battle, while the English were solemnly speaking to their priests, preparing for the worst. Although it is also stated that the French were also stalling for support to arrive, despite already having superior numbers. The following morning, the French would organise their ranks into three waves or lines. The vanguard was commanded by the constable himself, Charles d'Albray. Many other nobles would jostle for a position in the glory of the vanguard. The middle contained many French archers and contained John, Duke of Alençon. Behind the archers was the French rearguard. Henry was in the centre of the English formation. His uncle, another descendant of Edward III, was Edmund of Langley, the first Duke of York, and he commanded the right flank. The left flank was commanded by Thomas Camoys, first Baron Camoys. The famous English archers who had done so much damage at the Battle of Cressy back in 1346 were at the flanks under the command of Sir Thomas Erpingham. Those who were not archers were mainly knights and dismounted men-at-arms. The French had a good amount of heavy cavalry and the English set sharpened stakes in front of their archers to protect against cavalry attack. Edward III had made St George the patron saint of England and Henry V honoured St George by ensuring that his army was wearing the Red Cross of St George that is still the flag of the modern country of England. It is also stated that Henry V himself was wearing the English royal arms that we commonly know as the Three Lions. The French referred to them as leopards. More scandalous was the fact that Henry was wearing the three lily flowers, which were the arms of the French, as Henry controversially wanted to claim that he was the legitimate King of France, continuing the tradition of Edward III, who also claimed his right to the French throne. Of course, the French called the lily flower the fleur de lis. The Battle of Agincourt the following morning, the 25th of October 1415, started out as a battle of wits and nerve as both armies tentatively stood off from one another, trying to entice the other into making the first move. The French knew that the English would have to do something eventually, and Charles attempted to offer Henry the ability to enter negotiations with him. Henry was only interested in an outcome favourable to him, so he was not attracted by Charles's offer. It was after 11am that Henry decided that he needed to do something, so he ordered his archers to move further down the flanks of the opening to within the range of the French army. There the archers planted their spikes to protect themselves against oncoming cavalry. The rest of the English army slowly marched down the centre of the avenue towards the French. Henry ordered the longbowmen to launch their arrows high into the sky and these arrows turned into a shower of destruction for the French. The armoured knights were able to weather most of the arrows 
but their horses generally were not, and any men-at-arms not armoured well were also vulnerable. The heavy rain had turned the battlefield into a mud bath, as horses and men alike slipped and slid around. The French did not want to retreat, but found the battlefield to be an absolute mess. The French were trying to advance in slippery conditions and the fallen bodies of men and horses were hampering attempts to move forwards. The wooden stakes seemed to do a great job of protecting the English longbowmen from attack. Some of the longbowmen would advance beyond the stakes to capture French soldiers and take them prisoner. The centre of the French army chose to advance against the English infantry in the centre of the battlefield, which was commanded by the Duke of York. The result was a brutal and bloody close quarters battle where any weapon was fair game, with troops from both sides engaged in a mud-soaked tussle in which the belligerents were battling against each other with blunt weapons. Soon, many bodies were being beaten down into the blood-soaked earth and it is believed that the Duke of York was caught up in this melee where he may have been crushed by a crowd and suffocated to death. We certainly know that he did not make it out alive. Despite the loss of the Duke of York, the French were clearly being overwhelmed by the English who had lured them into a trap where their vast numbers were causing them manoeuvrability issues and the English were able to pick them off. Many Frenchmen had been captured and a group of French mounted knights had managed to avoid the English front line and get behind them, targeting the English baggage train where the captured French troops were being held. The English were able to return to the baggage train and successfully defend it before the captured Frenchmen were able to be freed Henry made a very controversial decision at this point. He ordered on-the-spot executions of most of the French prisoners. Firstly, this was generally a very unchivalrous move. Secondly, prisoners had value and could be held for ransom, so their slaughter potentially denied some Englishmen a source of income. Henry's will was carried out though and most of the prisoners were killed on the spot, meaning that the French would not try to breach the English front line again. Three hours of slaughter had resulted in complete disaster for the French army. The death of the Duke of York was a major loss for the English army, but things were worse for the French. The Duke of Bourbon, the Duke of Orléans, and the French knight Jean Le Mangre were all prisoners of war. Both Bourbon and Le Mangre would live the rest of their lives in captivity in England. Worse still was the death of John, the Duke of Alençon, a senior commander, and at the pinnacle was the constable of France, Charles d'Albray himself. D'Albray also died on the battlefield of Agincourt on this day. This victory by the English enabled their escape from France where they could prepare for a new invasion full of self-belief thanks to their achievements at Agincourt. Now, if you'd like to learn more about any of those four battles, then they are in the archives of the History of the World podcast, full episodes around those battles. The, what, what you heard today were just 
snippets of those episodes. So go back, they're all in volume four, the Battle of Clontarf, the Battle of Rio Salado, the Battle of Legnano, the Battle of Agincourt, along with many others. But these were the, the four that really stood out for me as ones where the victory was against the odds. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks a lot, as ever. Very kind of you to listen to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. Our second part of our two-parter on unlikely military victories. Now, if you enjoy listening to the podcast and you would like to support our podcast, then please visit the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. By doing that, you will become eligible for gifts and rewards, and you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. If you want to access bonus material, and you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just click on the link in the podcast description. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if making a financial contribution is something that is not going to be uh, easy for you, is not doesn't suit you, then you can still do something for the podcast. Just rate and review wherever you listen. And when you kindly write a review, always read it out. Like I read out all of the messages that are sent to me as well. Um, But this week, all I can tell you is that we do have a new History of the World podcast uh, Illuminati member, and that's Dan Aspenwall. So welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Next week... I'm hoping that we're going to be able to present a big, fat episode about Korean history. We're going to pick up the story that we left last week. As for the next History of the World podcast magazine episode, I believe that that's going to be uh, on Christmas Day. So you can listen to the History of the World podcast while you're cooking your turkey. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.